Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 17, A History of the Decline and Fall of General Bacon. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. There are several ways you can support the show, such as by leaving an iTunes review or signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. Special thanks to our newest pioneers this week, listener Alan. Thank you, I couldn't do the show without you. When we left things last time out, Virginia had thrown off the mantle of subservience to England, and had decided to take a shot at independence. They didn't want to go it alone against England, so they sounded out the other colonies. Massachusetts was the ally the revolutionaries really wanted, but Bacon was confident that Maryland and Carolina would both join too, and they had representatives at the Green Spring meetings, though we'll get more into the specific issues affecting those states at a later date. For now, I'll note that the protesters in Maryland, opposed to their provincial government, saw the solution not in independence, but in tighter control by England. They wanted a stronger imperial system, since each colony was pretty autonomous aside from New York. They wanted a royal commander-in-chief for North America, so that the colonies would work together more, and so that they would be less at the whims of the colonial oligarchs. This brought them into opposition against Bacon, who was preparing to resist royal troops, even though their initial enemies were the same, Berkeley in Virginia and Baltimore in Maryland. The leadership was certainly in communication, although sadly for historians these communications were later destroyed. Bacon tried to convince the Marylanders that he could be victorious. His men knew the country, his men were acclimatised, they could ambush the English soldiers, who would be sick with disease. They would use the tobacco they grew to defy the Navigation Acts and sell to the French and Dutch for support. As big as Virginia was, it was still very reliant on economic support from England, and it could not ignore the transatlantic trade system just yet. This was not enough to convince the Marylanders to join Bacon, and... Why they didn't join explains why the United States of America became independent in 1776, not 1676. Bacon expected 2,000 redcoats to land in Virginia, and the Marylanders believed that 500 would be enough to do the job. There was no rebel navy to defend the coasts from landing. Virginia was still very coastal, and so was easy to raid. It would be easy for the English to starve the Virginians out. Plus, many of the Virginians were recent immigrants with strong connections to England. They would not abandon them as easily as Bacon wanted them to. Bacon's radicalism was also an alienating force. While Virginians were prepared to attack redcoats, men they didn't know, Bacon wanted a radical social revolution and to kill county officials and tear down the administration. These were people's friends and neighbours. No one really wanted that. The Marylanders believed that Bacon had misunderstood his revolution. This was a racial issue against the Native Americans, and annoyance at Berkeley. This was not, for most, a desire to put the colony on its head with executions of the grandees and independence from England. 
Bacon wasn't able to distinguish between the oppression of Berkeley and royal authority, as most did. Bacon was driven to republicanism out of anti-imperial logic. He was, in some ways, a century ahead of his time. While Maryland would not join in open rebellion, Bacon expanded his control of Virginia throughout September and October until he controlled about two-thirds of the colony, which was administered by a series of revolutionary councils. The population was approximately 15,000, and Berkeley estimated that only 500 remained loyal. At this point, disaster struck. Bacon had been weakened by illness he caught during the wet camps while staying in the forests and outside Jamestown, and he died on October 26th. With Berkeley once again in exile on the eastern shore, the rebels needed someone to lead them, and so they made Lawrence Ingram their general. He was the most important of the rebel leaders, although there were other captains whose names I will not trouble you with. The troops dispersed to winter quarters, as was the style at the time, which is why the winter campaign had a very different nature to it. The rebel forces spread out into small garrisons. Aside from their main base, West Point, no, not that West Point, which held 800 men, none of their bases held more than 200, and most held less than 40. This gave the advantage to the Loyalist forces which were centred on the coast, and which also held the sea thanks to the support of the tobacco ships. They would have an amphibious war up and down the James and York rivers. They slowly wore down the rebels, and by November, Berkeley allowed pardons to those who would renounce the rebellion. It took some time, but by the end of November, and as things entered December, the rebels started to go back to Berkeley, one by one, county by county. 1676 turned into 1677, and Berkeley's forces continued pushing into the interior, reaching Jamestown by the end of January. The rebels found were hanged. The advance continued. Berkeley's home of Green Spring was recaptured. Suddenly, now that he was once again in a position of power, Berkeley reneged on his promised pardons. Admiral Morris, the man in the field who had issued the pardons, was far more decent than Berkeley, and warned those that he'd pardoned to flee when he got word of what was happening. It is at this moment, the end of January 1677, that the royal forces finally arrived. 1,300 redcoats arrived, and began to settle things. Most of the rebels were to be pardoned, and peace was brought. The captains of the Virginian navy were credited with the victory by the royalists, something which Berkeley was too arrogant to do. Berkeley and his allies had not won the war, even though they might think it. They had just caused an awful lot of trouble through misrule. If you'll allow me to quote from 1676, The End of American Independence by Stephen Saunders Webb, my main source of information for the past few episodes, quote, Doubly convinced of oligarchic incapacity, either to fight or to govern, the officers of the Crown imposed direct royal government on Virginia, backing it on occasion with military force. 
Thus, they displaced the Berkelian regime, as well as repressing the Baconian revolutionaries, by substituting royal military occupation for English naval patrols. Two bids for Virginian independence therefore failed in 1676. The autonomy of the Berkelian regime had left it free to provoke the revolution, which, in turn, justified the crown's termination of the oligarchical rule of the old assembly system. The radical effort of the Baconians to secure independence had failed because of colonial underdevelopment, but had, nevertheless, provoked royal reform of Virginia's government. Ironically, the failed revolutionary effort combined with obvious oligarchical excess to excite an unprecedented imperial presence in Virginia. End quote. Berkeley had to tear apart his life's work. He had spent the greater part of the last 35 years, half his life, working on creating a system of oligarchical rule in Virginia, which was almost independent of England. Powers were transferred from the governor to the king. Attempts were made to clean up the whole government system, to reduce inequality and make things fairer. It was acknowledged that Berkeley had failed to defend the province. The king promised that he would orchestrate a defence, but made clear that there would have to be taxes in order to pay for it. But the accounting was to be more accountable. There were also attacks and executions of Native Americans in order to garner favour. Eventually, Berkeley was dismissed. The masses were bought off with popular policies such as these. While voting restrictions were introduced and power was concentrated with the richer of the Virginians to gain their support. The former slaves, who had been Bacon's loyalist support, were oppressed, as they would be for two more centuries. The imposition of royal authority was complete. This ends the first stage of our narrative. Our first chapter. We have taken Virginia from the foundation of Jamestown, which set off in 1606, to the end of Bacon's Rebellion in 1677. It has been 71 years, which has seen the population of Virginia go from less than 40 in 1607 to some 15,000. It had mostly reached the form it would take for the remainder of the colonial era. So, what now? While, when we started, Virginia was the only English presence in North America, Virginia is no longer in isolation. We also have, in 1677, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and Carolina. Pennsylvania wouldn't be founded until 1681, Carolina wouldn't split into North and South until 1712, and then Georgia would be created in 1732 to bring us up to 13. So, now we need to catch up. Next time, we turn to New England as we begin to tell the tale of the Pilgrim Fathers. This break also marks a convenient point to talk about the state of the podcast so far. I've been, frankly, overwhelmed by the reaction to this series. I've launched other podcasts, but this one has gotten a lot bigger than the others an awful lot more quickly. 
I've loved making the last 17 episodes, and can't wait to get into the hundreds we have ahead of us. I can't say how happy I am that you guys like this, and how grateful I am, particularly to the pioneers. I'm loving trying to turn this into a career. But, let's be blunt. I need to be realistic about what I can do, and at the moment, I can't do this for much longer. I can only justify building this while it eats into my savings for so long before I need to take a hard-headed approach. There are bills which need to be paid, after all. So, why am I telling you this? Well, I've been approached by potential advertisers who want to work with the show. I hadn't really thought about having adverts, but I've talked with them, and having them on the show would allow me to carry on doing this. I wouldn't have to choose between making the show and, to be blunt, being able to live. I don't want to do anything to ruin the integrity of the show, which is why I'm bringing this to you guys before I do anything. I've spoken with the pioneers, as I've taken to calling the membership program, and they've been really supportive about adverts being okay if that's what it takes to keep the show going. So, now I'm bringing it to you. As part of this, there is a listener survey. You can find a link to it in the page for this show on the website, which helps match podcasts with advertisers who would be best suited for their audiences. It shouldn't take too much of your time. I think I need a certain number of you to do it in order to continue with the consulting process before things go any further, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the matter. You can do so on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, on Twitter, at History Jamie, or by sending me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. (laughs) 